Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 21st of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we've got David Scott and Mark Anderson. Welcome to the program, both. Uh, we're going to get straight on with uh, food production. And well, the Ministry of Defence has been pushing out their latest propaganda piece on the potential for food price rises and food inflation being caused by the Russians. Um, so this was a little bit of video they were putting out on uh, on Twitter this morning, uh, talking about the attacks and so on. But really, it's all about food production and uh, uh, Russia. But the question is, I have a question. This is it. Have global grain prices been destabilized by Russia's actions or by the globalization of food production combined with net zero policy? Well, I'm going to argue here. I'm going to ask for David and Mark's comment in a second. I'm going to argue that it is the latter and not Russia's actions because this is merely... Uh, the result of longer term policy. So let's look at uh, the latest release from the UK government on countryside stewardship because they have decided to uh, op extend the application window for the 2024 countryside stewardship mid-tier agreements. Uh, that's now been extended until the 15th of February, uh, 15th of September, uh, Friday the 15th, to allow more time for people, that's farmers, to submit their applications online following direct feedback. Now, what uh, are they talking about here with mid-tier agreements? Well, if you think back to the sustainable, sustainable farming uh, information that they released several years ago now, they were talking about three major tiers. Uh, sustainable farming incentive is tier one, top tier. Local nature recovering was the mid-tier. And landscape recovery was the lower tier. Um, so looking at the, the mid-tier sustainable farming, the language has changed slightly in, uh, in the intervening years. Uh, the key aspects of this are wildlife and nature, that's restoring habitats, increasing biodiversity, providing food and nesting places. Now, that's not providing food for human beings, that's providing food for birds and other uh, animal life, uh, creating areas for rare flowering plants and managing hedges. Uh, then the next one that they have on their list is air and water, making air and water cleaner, reducing risk of flooding by encouraging changes to farming practice and improving farm infrastructure. Uh, then we've got pollinators, uh, ensuring the right resources for wild pollinators are where they needed, are needed most. And finally, uh, historic en environment, landscape character, genetic conservation, educational access and climate change adaptation mitigation. That's the fourth area, which is considered mid-tier sustainable farming. Um, so coming back to the latest press release on uh, countryside stewardship, uh, let's have a look and see what it says. It says uh, countryside stewardship plays a significant role in the government's efforts uh, to make food production more resilient while contributing towards the UK's environmental goals, such as biodiversity and water quality. And most people should have noticed that nowhere in any of that did it say anything about food production. So let's uh, just bring uh, Therese Coffey on screen. Uh, she said it's important that we listen to farmers who are key custodians of the countryside. So they're not key producers of food. They're key custodians of the countryside. And David, here is my main problem with this. Uh, while we're busy blaming the Russians for destabilization of food prices, uh, in the meantime, we've been globalizing the situation, uh, making food production the purview of one or two areas on the planet uh, and reducing our own capability to feed ourselves. Uh, and in the meantime, turning the farming community, making farming uh, through government policy, less and less profitable to the point that it's reliant on uh, government subsidy. And since the common agricultural policy has been dumped, uh, we have been re we've replaced that with 
changing farmers from food producers to custodians of the countryside and the environment? Yes, I suppose one of, one of the issues here is when the, the, when the government moved into the farming sector with the subsidies and started to distort the decisions that were being made, they weaned that entire sector more and more on to dependence on the state. And with the rough comes the smooth. With dependence on the state comes the state calling the tune. And the tune is now, don't, don't produce food, produce uh, rewilding. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Now, Mark, I'm interested to know if the same type of uh, exercise is going on in the United States, if you know. Well, one thing in the United States is there's an over-dependency on California for a lot of fruits and vegetables. And of course, they're very prone to extended droughts and wildfires, mudslides. Um, in Michigan here, there's kind of an autarky where uh, beer beer makers get locally grown hops. A lot of restaurants get locally grown produce. And that's kind of a good thing in Michigan. Being a big country, it kind of varies. But um, certainly the U.S. as part of the global system uh, is still participating in this. Uh, here, again, overly dependent on, on California. But, but in other parts of the country, they seem to be catching on that we need localized, um, bottom-up, grassroots farming. And that's happening a lot in the Midwest, I'm glad to say. So it varies, but it's a little bit better here. Okay, so we'll just remind everybody, of course, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, less than 50% food independent. We import uh, more than 50% of the food that we need uh, and are therefore much more susceptible to um, issues with uh, geopolitical uh, upheaval and so on. So uh, that's that's where we are with the situation at the moment. Uh, we might say that what's going on in Ukraine is having an effect on uh, the availability of grains and, and affecting the, the prices of, of grains and so on. But at the back of this is a policy which has left us open to this type of, uh, of problem. David? Well, just very briefly, the Ukraine crisis had been creating problems in grain supply and pushing prices up uh, to a much lesser extent, though, than the 2007-2008 financial crisis. It, it did much less than that. Um, and it's also largely in the rearview mirror, because right now it, the price is rather normal. Uh, indeed. Okay, let's move on then uh, and to Mark and let's see the World Health Organization uh, G20 meeting. Uh, here he is again, the Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus um, peddling his, uh, his policy changes and his... Uh, he addressed the G20. Here's the headline from the WHO itself. The WHO Director General's opening remarks at G20 Health Minister's meeting Inaugural session just very recently, the 18th of August. From there, yeah, keep going. Uh, this, this is some of what he had to say. This kind of lays the, the groundwork. I thank India for its generous hospitality and for its visionary leadership by making a priority of its G20 presidency. So, India is leading the pack this time. I also congratulate India for its commitment to universal health coverage at home. They're really pushing this for the poorer countries, by the way, through the WHO, especially through Mr. Bharat. I won't try to say that first name, the world's largest health insurance scheme. On, on Wednesday, I had the opportunity to visit a health and wellness center here in Gujarat, which, in, which is providing primary services in households. I was especially impressed by the use of telemedicine 
to provide uh, consultations. Of course, that's where doctors and patients communicate online and they don't have to get together in person. That's not such a bad thing in and of itself, of course. This is just one example of how digital technologies are transforming health locally and globally. Did you have something to say, Mike, before I go on? Uh, no, uh, only to say, of course, that's exactly what we're seeing in this country. Fewer and fewer face-to-face -face, uh, uh, meetings with uh, general practitioners and more and more online or telephone uh, teleconference type uh, uh, meetings with GPs. And people are not uh, getting a good service as a result. But go ahead, Mark. Yeah, it can be a, it can be a convenience. It can be useful. But you're right. If you have something more in-depth wrong with you, it can be very substantial. But moving on from there. The uh, uh, director general had this to say during his address. I thank India and all G20 countries for your leadership in developing, get this, the global initiative on digital health, which we will formally launch tomorrow. And tomorrow was this past Saturday, August 19th. So the global in, uh, initiative on digital health. And I don't know if a lot of us saw that coming, at least not long term. And that's been launched. And moving on. Mr. Gates also noted the following. This supports the WHO global strategy on digital health and will amplify other initiatives, including the WHO Global Health Certification Network, which we established earlier this year with European Commission support, no less. And that involves di digital technologies, which have a proven potential, the DG claims, for delivering health services to marginalized groups for preventing and responding to health emergencies such as COVID-19. So one detects that they're adjusting the dials here with all these digital initiatives and related matters, um, while the WHO also talks about supposedly increased COVID-19 cases as the winter approaches, and they're working on a pandemic treaty and the international health regulations that we cover regularly here. So it it appears by all indications that they're putting all the chess man, all the pieces in place to move forward, uh, possibly with cl claiming another pandemic. But certainly um, it provides grist for the mill, for the treaty and uh, tightening up those regs. And um, the digital indications there or the digital project could also indicate uh, more work on uh, digital IDs to prove you've been vaccinated. Vaccinated, that would certainly fit into that scheme. But this is just more steps the WHO is taking as we watch them step by step over the course of this fall, going into early next year and then next spring when they plan to wrap up that pandemic treaty. So that's just the latest update, Mike. Okay, thank you, Mark. Now we're going to come on to uh, quite a bit more uh, this time from the Russians on this issue of, of pandemics and so on. But David, uh, in the chat box just before the program started, somebody was saying that uh, their father is in hospital at the moment, uh, has been put on a COVID ward and that they are expected to wear a mask as they uh, would have visit uh, their father. So, you know, do you really think, and just the headlines in the mail over the last, particularly the Daily Mail over the last uh, few days, talking about this, uh, this new scary variant that we've got to be concerned about and that we might see a mask mandate coming back uh, this winter. Uh, do you think they're really going to try to play that gag again? Well, I wouldn't have thought so because the, the arguments had failed and the arguments were shown to be false. And since they don't have justification, they're going to run into a lot more resistance and a lot more legal challenges if they were to try it a second time around. But are they that stupid? Well, it could be. We've got Jason Leach up in Scotland who is bigging up the fear already. 
and talking about uh, 200 cases in hospital and uh, suggesting that we're going to have a very difficult COVID winter. Yes. Okay. Well, look, let's come back to Scotland then. And uh, well, last Thursday, I think it was, you were uh, at a comedy event, which got cancelled. It did. So here we have uh, Edgy Comedy is back, it says. Uh, well, not exactly. Uh, this is Comedy Unleashed. And again, not exactly, because this, this was in Edinburgh, the uh, home of the Enlightenment and of the Edinburgh Festival. And uh, it didn't go entirely according to plan. So it was meant to be Mary Bork, Dominic Frisbee, Alistair Williams, Clay Nonahan, and uh, Bruce Devlin uh, as Compia. And uh, then the venue, uh, the Arches in Leith, um, they cancelled. And what they said was, uh, we'd like to thank the public for bringing to our attention uh, about, they haven't worded it terribly well, I apologise about the English, about a comedian who has been booked for an upcoming comedy show at our venue this Thursday which we, quote, uh, which we, Block Capitals, were not made aware of until today via emails from rightly so outraged members of our community. We do not support this comedian or his views, and he will not be allowed to perform at our venue and is cancelled from Thursday's comedy show with immediate effect. Um, so there's no doubt that this is cancel culture. I mean, they're not hiding it. This is, this is cancelling. So the, uh, I, I got an email from the organiser because I bought a ticket and the email said, well, we're going to try and get another venue. We'll, we'll let you know and we'll, we'll send you secret information about where we're going to meet to, to listen to this comedy, this edgy comedy, at half three on Thursday. So half three on Thursday, I duly got an email in and it said, tonight's gig will be held in the open air outside the Scottish Parliament building. Our replacement venue also cancelled the booking. We've had a frantic day trying to find a third venue. Uh, we nearly got the City Council debating chamber, but they didn't have enough staff at such short notice. We can't find a single venue that will host our lovely little comedy Unleashed gig. We're going to do it in the street. So there we go. Um, now, the, the re there was a lot of media attention. Uh, the, the press in Scotland were lame about this. I mean, they couldn't find... A shiver ran around looking for a spine to run up, but they didn't find one. They couldn't find anything meaningful to say. Uh, we did have comment from the Telegraph, which is a little more to point. Um, Michael Deacon said, cancelling Graham uh, Linehan proves that the word inclusive has lost all meaning. Um, and it points out that, that this is a, uh, one in a long line of English words to, to reverse its meaning. It now, is mean, it now seems that inclusive means excluding people. Well, there we go. Uh, and we have a little clip uh, that I recorded of Graham Linehan at the comedy show. Um, listen, I, I kind of, I do have, uh, I do have uh, uh, scattered uh, other jokes, but uh, probably should have said that. I should pretend that that was it. But uh, I don't know. It's been such a strange day that I think I'll leave it there. Um, but I just wanted to say, um, first of all, I'm really sorry that you got messed around today. Uh, as you can tell. You know, despite the animal cruelty, there's not really much to these jokes apart from, you know, <laughs> you know, it's 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 just insane. I mean, I, I've been I've been fighting this stuff for five years, and I've never seen anything as insane as the last two days. You know, and I keep asking people what I've said wrong and what I what I'm saying wrong in this fight about women's spaces about children being mutilated and sterilized in gender clinics and about the women who are being harassed and threatened 
you know, uh, just coming up to Is, uh, you know, the comedy is something, it's, it's my first love, it's the thing I love to do. Um, but I've not been allowed to do that for five years. Uh, and this is just what I decided I would do to keep me down the wall. Come to city jokes. And they can't even let me do that. We've got your back, Graham, don't worry. Yeah. I know you do, and it really helps. Um, so anyway, yeah, so now that I've just completely killed the atmosphere for the next few years, <laughs> which was sort of the plan, to be honest, uh, I will take my leave, but, but uh, I will hang around, and I hope uh, to see you all for a drink after, and thank you very much for... Now, of course, we should say, David, that it's not just uh, comedy. I mean, in this case, this is the Edinburgh Festival, which is supposed to be a sort of fringe, you know, it has a fringe, it's supposed to be a kind of edgy uh, thing as in itself, but you're not allowed to be edgy anymore. Uh, but it's not just comedy which gets cancelled, uh, peace rallies get cancelled, uh, other political uh, commentary gets cancelled. Um, it's time, isn't it, for, for people from various areas to start, that are experiencing this, to start getting together and cooperating? Yes, I mean, f films get cancelled, documentaries get cancelled, uh, academic lectures get cancelled. These are all being viewed as unacceptable hate speech. Right? So here you have, uh, Graham Linehan came very much from the political left. When I first came across him, he was, uh, uh, generally speaking, against on, on platforms like Twitter, against people who you might describe as, as edgy and was, was, was really extremely mainstream and protecting the left-wing um, consensus view uh, very largely. Uh, but like many people from the political left, it got to a point where they said, no, this isn't right. So he started to speak out against the mutilation of children and gender uh, reassignment surgery and against the invasion of women's spaces and, uh, all, and sports and all that goes with it. And they have absolutely turned on him. Um, and, and likewise, and people in so many other fields, that the ability to speak is being eroded. And if you don't like Graham Linehan, uh, okay, but they will come for you too. Uh, one of the things that got cancelled this week was lesbian speed dating, because the lesbian speed dating organiser objected to a man with an erection in a purple latex suit turning up and said, we're not going to have that again. Uh, it, it, it caused trouble. No men. It, it, the lesbian speed dating is only for women. So uh, that got cancelled. And uh, there was many complaints made to that woman's employer that she should be essentially dismissed from her employment as well because of her unacceptable hate speech. Because they will come for your job, they'll come for your reputation, they'll come for everything unless, uh, unless you cry uncle and comply with the ideology. Yes. Okay. Brilliant. David, thank you very much. Okay, let's uh, move on. If you like what we do and you'd like to support the UK Column, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership, very much welcome and appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, uh, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now we've got uh, 
some advertisements for some uh, material on the UK Column website at the moment. Uh, I want to highlight this uh, article from Dr. Phil Bevan. Uh, does the res uh, recruitment of leftist anarchists to fight in Anglo-American proxy wars amount to an Operation Gladio Mark II? Now, the first criticism we've had of this, of course, is the suggestion is at Operation Gladio Mark II because uh, there have been many other potential operations that might have been uh, parallels with Operation, the original Operation Gladio. But nonetheless, the point here is that uh, uh, left left so-called leftist anarchists are getting involved in Syria, they're getting involved in Ukraine, they're very much involved in uh, political activity in the UK as well, uh, and uh, with connections to Integrity Initiative in the past and so on. Um, so this is going to be the first in possibly a series of articles here, so do have a read of this and please share it as widely as you possibly can. Uh, David, we have another article here in the absence of order. Yes. Um, so this was by uh, Colin Robertson, and it was uh, looking back at the life of Sinead O'Connor. Uh, and it was an extremely thoughtful and moving and uh, compassionate piece um, that looked realistically at her life, uh, but, but found a great deal to say that was, I think, of benefit to many people. And it was beautifully written. So I would encourage people, if they haven't already seen that article, to look it out. It's in the comments section on our main web page. Thank you for that. And uh, Mark, your article on the Bilderberg Group is up. Yeah, that's a picture I took there in Switzerland in 2011, Bilderberg Global Mafia. That's certainly close enough. And of course, the headline, Bilderberg Beyond the Meetings, Part 1, Big Tech and Big Media Interests Busily Branching Out. The big tech interest is Palantir and AI mainly, and the big media is Axel Springer, which is trying to make big inroads into American digital media, according to The Economist, which is also a Bilderberg publication. So give it a read. Uh, we're not just looking at the meetings. That can be a dead end at times, or at least rather bewildering. So looking at what the Bilderberg entities are actually doing in real time year round is much more instructive. Thank you, Mark. Uh, now, tomorrow at 1 p.m., uh, we've got an interview going out uh, featuring Leon Cryer, and this is the second uh, interview on architecture that Brian has done with Leon Cryer, so uh, do keep an eye out for that. Uh, and David, uh, Rally for Peace and Freedom. Yes, so this is uh, in Glasgow Green uh, on Saturday, um, so I hope people will come along to that. Uh, there are many speakers there, and we're going to be talking about the need for peace. And uh, amongst other things, uh, we're going to be quite critical of NATO and what NATO has become. Um, and so just to clarify, is that, taking uh, is that taking place in the open air because the venue was not possible? <laughs> well, it is taking place in the open air. I think that's more out of choice. Uh, or maybe out of poverty, I'm not quite sure, but we're in the open air on Glasgow Green, uh, so please find us there. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Okay, let's move on, and uh, well, a little bit of news from Moderna. Uh, so here they are. This is their LinkedIn page. Uh, Moderna is delighted to announce that Professor Sir Jonathan Van Tam has been appointed as a part-time consulting clinical advisor, reporting to Chief Medical Officer Paul Burton, they say. Uh, the appointment is in accordance with the Department for Health and Social Care in England's business appointment rules policy. Uh, Professor Van Tam, professionally known as JVT, uh, has a distinguished career in public health and epidemiology, working in government, academia, and industry in 2017. He was seconded to DHSC as Deputy Chief Medical Officer, and he was then key provider of independent advice 
to the government on COVID-19, uh, leading on health protection and regularly presenting at Downing Street press conferences. He received a knighthood for his services to public health. So this is a, a bit of good news, David. Uh, do you think uh, this might be called, uh, a, I mean, what, what is going on here? Has he been given a, a present for all the good work that he did in support of the vaccine industry over the last two or three years, do you think? Well, he got a knighthood, but that's not all he got. You know, so he's he's got this is is this a retirement plan? Uh, it certainly looks like a revolving door. So we have a revolving door between um, government and such regulation as they now represent, which is very little, as we know, uh, and uh, and the industry, big farmer, uh, who are pushing ever more and uh, drugs and injections on the country. And they're looking for political mandates and political support to prevent them from lawsuits in order to make their business model possible. Now, everybody would be very glad to know that he, uh, Van, Professor Van Tam, or Van Tam is prohibited from using uh, what might be called privileged information that he received while he was working for government uh, in his business interests. So, uh, well, we'll see uh, how that works out. Now, with that in mind, uh, I want to bring this on screen. This is from the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense, um, and uh, it's apparently a very recent document. Um, uh, it was given, it was a briefing document uh, given by uh, the chief of nuclear clinical, sorry, nuclear chemical and biological protection troops of the Russian armed forces. Uh, this is Lieutenant General Igor Kirillov. Um, and uh, I believe the date of this uh, was the 16th of August, 2023. Uh, and just this is just the first slide of it. So uh, they're talking about stated and real goals of US military biological programs. Uh, and they're talking about monitoring the biological situation, assistance to developing countries and so on, uh, and various types of signs that the USA is conducting research bypassing uh, obligations under the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention. Now, the second slide gets more interesting because it's looking at the lobbying interests uh, around pharmaceutical companies. So if we start, the, uh, this is on the left-hand side of the slide, if we start in the uh, top right-hand right uh, side, they're looking at the various pharma companies uh, feeding money into political campaigns, um, and that political campaigns therefore result in, uh, well, presidents and so, others, so on uh, being elected into office, uh, who then feed their policy into the various government departments. Uh, the various government departments provide funding and uh, direction to some of the NGOs, and the NGOs that they've listed there include uh, Bill and Melinda Gates or the Soros Foundation, Open Society Foundation, and so on, uh, which then uh, feeds into, um, well, in this case, they're talking about uh, interests in Ukraine, but of course, this doesn't just apply to Ukraine. And then that feeds back into the pharmaceutical companies because uh, mainly the focus here is on the Ukrainian biolabs and so on. Uh, and on the right-hand side, they are looking for uh, looking at organizations, for example, the EcoHealth Alliance. Now, I just wanted to uh, put the, the front page of their website on screen for a second. This is the EcoHealth Health Alliance. Who stands between you and the next pandemic is their uh, main headline. Uh, learn more about disease recovery. Uh, now, who stands between you and the next pandemic? Just think about that. What, are they asking a question of who it might be or are they referring to the World Health Organization? You can decide for yourself. Uh, but anyway, coming back to the uh, the Russian uh, Ministry of Defense document then, uh, they're talking about uh, the new pandemic preparedness structure for U.S. biological strategic plans. They're talking about the Department of Defense bio 
Manufacturing Strategy, published in March 2023. Uh, they're talking about the Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response Policy, uh, which is being head up by, uh, headed up by Paul Friedrichs uh, on the right-hand side there. So let's just bring the announcement for that, which uh, this was uh, published by the White House on the 21st July. Uh, fact sheet, White House announces, uh, launches Office of Pandemic Preparedness and Response Policy, uh, headed up by Major General Paul Friedrichs. He's going to serve as the inaugural direct, uh, director. The, the Biden-Harris administration has made historic progress in our nation's ability to manage COVID-19 so that it no longer meaningfully disrupts the way we live our lives. Under President Biden's leadership, it says, the administration has taken significant steps to ensure all individuals have continued access to life-saving protections, such as vaccines, treatments and tests, and that the nation is well prepared to manage the risks of COVID-19 or other causes of potential pandemics in the future. So uh, clearly this whole pandemic preparedness uh, business, aside from what the World Health Organization is doing, and we asked the question a few minutes ago, are they really going to continue this gag? It's looking very like it. Now coming back to the uh, Russian document then, uh, they're talking about the participation of U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases in military biomedical programs uh, and uh, so on. So you can look at this at your leisure. And then finally, they're looking at the people that have been involved in the implementation of U.S. research projects as part of U.S. biological military activities in Ukraine. Uh, and they have uh, six people on screen there and so on. Now, uh, no matter what you think about uh, Russia and uh, what the, 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 whether this is uh, you know, designed to, to uh, put forward a, a particular narrative with respect to the Ukraine war or not, the fact is that there's not very much in that uh, several slides that I could find, in fact, nothing that I could find which is untrue or misleading. Uh, and we've just given a couple of examples of, of that uh, on screen. So David, I was just very quickly get some comment from you on it, uh, because uh, clear, aside from what Mark's talked about uh, over the last number of weeks and today about the World Health Organization and pandemic preparedness, uh, the Russians, I think, are right to highlight what the United States in particular is doing in this area. They are, and the and the core the core message of this is is vital and is undeniable, and that's the circular relationship between big pharma. And through government power, um, tax exempt foundations, NGOs, and 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 round and round it goes. So there's a coercive element here, which is exploiting uh, the position in the West for the enrichment of uh, of the big farmer uh, companies. Uh, and also, you mentioned there, you know, that their their website are pointing towards. Um, uh, vaccines, uh, treatments, and tests. I mean, I mean, really, they're saying this with a straight face. The vaccines that cause so much harm, and that uh, after a short period seem to increase your risk of getting COVID. Uh, I don't remember actually there being much in the way of treatments, and the testing was a never-ending catastrophe, um, which simply generated fear, but didn't generate any clarity or safety. So. The, 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 they're pointing to things which, which are, as uh, the people who are defending against this uh, narrative from, the, from Russia, are pointing to, to, to um, innovations and, uh, and, and pieces of history from the, from the COVID years that are completely discredited. And they're standing on that. They don't have anything else. This is, uh, they do not look at all convincing.
Yeah, indeed. So, Mark, uh, let's move on then to banking and the Jackson Hole uh, event is taking place. Yeah, this doesn't get a lot of your daily press like announcements on the news. The, the news about this is largely relegated to the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Reuters, Bloomberg, some of which are Bilderberg players. And that's an incidental comment there, but worth noting. Um, here's the headline. And I believe this came from Bloomberg. Powell, uh, that's uh, Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, to speak August 25, coming up at Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That's where it is. The annual economics uh, symposium, a quick note, it started in 1978 in Kansas City. It was held there at the Kansas City Fed branch. But then a few years after that, they moved it to the Grand Tetons, an especially beautiful area in um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, This next slide kind of illustrates that. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, and it talks about the 2023 Economic Symposium uh, coming up August 24th through 26th. And the uh, title of it is Structural Shifts in the Global Economy. And as that Reuters or Bloomberg article rather noted at the beginning, uh, they're looking a lot at uh, what Powell might say about raising rates again. Here's a sampling. Uh, The 2023 outlook, I put the answer to that question is the party line. Uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell will deliver a talk on the economic outlook, as I noted, August 25 at the Central Bankers Confab held each year in Jackson Hole, uh, uh, sponsored by the Kansas City Fed. And the speech set for 10.05 a.m. Eastern time, that's, I think, 8.05 a.m. Mountain time. So he's the first speaker of the day that day. It'll provide a chance to give Powell's latest views on whether more policy tightening will be needed to bring down inflation amid surprisingly strong economic growth, or if enough progress on disinflation, there's an unusual term, has been made to hold rates steadily or steady. And um, as I've noted in past um, UK columns, uh, raising rates is not necessarily a way to lower prices. We have to be specific and say price inflation, not simply say inflation. Anyway, moving on a little bit more, a little bit more explanation here. The Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City's Economic Policy Symposium in Jackson Hole is one of the longest standing central bank conferences in the world. It brings together economists, financial market participants, academics, U.S. government representatives, and news media to discuss long-term policies of mutual concern. And a quick footnote is the, the media is not there, the selective media, to really so much as cover it as to, to a degree, take part, which that, is really improper. Anyway, yeah, to but that's, foster uh, that's, the open- Sorry, Mark, just to say that, that's very much in the mold of Bilderberg then. Oh, very much so, yeah. And you'd have to be very select in the media to, to achieve that result. Anyway, to foster the open discussion that the symposium is known for, here we go. Attendees are selected based on each year's topic with consideration for diversity in region, background, and industry. In a typical year, about 120 people attend consisting of the following groups. A key feature of the event is the thoughtful discussion that takes place among the participants. This is very reminiscent of Bilderberg. Given the participants and the topics being discussed, there's substantial interest in the symposium. However, to help foster the open discussion, open discussion that's been so critical to the symposium's success, attendance at the event is limited. So if you want open discussion, you have to have fewer people, which sounds a little counterintuitive. Anyway, this is a chart that kind of shows the relative 
importance and the uh, overall participation. Similarly, although the bank receives numerous requests for media outlets worldwide, press attendance is also limited to a group that is selected to provide transparency to the symposium, but yet not overwhelm or influence the proceedings. All symposium participants, including members of the press, pay a fee to attend. The fees help offset expenses. Interesting there that the uh, the organizers don't want to overwhelm the or influence the proceedings by having the wrong media there, which is just another way of saying they don't want too many questions being asked and they want the machine to run smoothly. So it is somewhat like Bilderberg there. Now, this is a, a list. Uh, as I mentioned, this whole thing started in 1978 at the Kansas City Fed. This is a list from 1986 up to the present of the different topics. Uh, I'll only mention a couple of them. Uh, 2000 is uh, quite interesting. Uh, if I'm getting this right, let me see, where's that? Global Economic Integration Opportunities and Challenges was 2000. The print is very small for my end. I, I beg your pardon. Yeah, uh, Global Integration uh, Opportunities and Challenges. Thank you. And um, that's just one of many. Uh, e uh, many of them are, are easily a, a cure for insomnia. It's, it's very dry in many areas, but um, the, uh, uh, that, that will give readers and viewers an um, overall view that want to uh, check that out and look at that more closely later on. But that just gives you an idea of the topics. Now, Jerome Powell on the 29th of June this year spoke to the Banco de España, a fourth bankers conference in Spain, Madrid, I believe, and he said this, we cannot take the resilience of the financial system for granted, however, the multiple shocks we have seen over the past year or so, including the extreme volatility in commodity markets following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and of course, surprisingly high and persistent inflation, as well as the associated increase in interest rates, stressed a range of bank and non-bank, uh, stressed rather, stressed a range of bank and non-bank financial institutions. That's a little bit of what he had to say. And the, ne the next slide comes out of my The Truth Hound blog. And this um, illustration here, I think, shows the actual relationship uh, between banking and the people and governments. The bankers are the fat cats with the, the, the fresh set of clothes, and they're, they're stuffing themselves to the rafters. The government is the servant. Meanwhile, the people are put into peonage. And I think that illustrates it really well. The headline of my article there. I, I meant to read that headline, yeah, but okay, uh, at any rate, yeah, raising interest rates akin to giving patient chemo, which, which dies first, the, infl the uh, inflation or the economy. And uh, I think that's a fair headline uh, from my truthhound.com article. This is the opening paragraph. When the Federal Reserve on July 26 approved a widely expected interest rate hike that moved benchmark borrowing costs to their highest level in more than 22 years, the 11th rate increase since the Fed launched its fight against inflation in March of 22, it continued peddling the notion that price inflation is an external force over which the Fed has no direct control. Price inflation is referred to as if it's an earthquake or a thunderstorm, or perhaps a capricious dragon bent on destruction, patiently stewing away in its lair, just waiting to pounce. And a couple, couple slides ago, that's the way Jerome Powell was talking. He talked about tremors. He talked about shocks as if the Fed's policies, whether it's the money printing side of it 
or imposing costs, which is the cost push side of inflation, regardless of which, of which kind of inflation it is, the Fed wants to act as if it has no causative factor in all this. Now, this is a quote from Dr. Oliver Haydorn, um, an acquaintance of mine. He wrote the book, Social Credit Economics, Not to Be Confused with the Chinese System. He noted the following, basically, the raising of interest rates to fight inflation is akin to using chemotherapy to treat cancer in allopathic medicine. Just as chemotherapy involves injecting someone with poison in the hope that it will kill the cancer before it kills the patient, so too, increasing interest rates sickens the economy. And that sickening of the economy can be businesses closing, businesses hoped for that never started up, businesses wanting to expand that instead contract or at least don't expand, and lots of losses. So the Fed is going to do a lot of damage in its one-size-fits-all approach to controlling inflation. So a, a lot of eyes will be on Jerome Powell. I'll have a lot more about this, Mike, after he actually gives his speech. And we'll see how open the organizers of the conference are with releasing minutes, releasing press releases, speech excerpts. But we'll dissect it a little bit more later. But the main thing to look out for now is the deceptive language of the Fed going into this, um, acting as if uh, the price inflation that it has a hand in causing is as impersonal and distant as an earthquake or you might say a wildfire. So lots of deception there, but we'll keep an eye on it. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and David, uh, let's move over to China then. And, and uh, Evergrande has finally filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, so just a, a little overview of what's happening in China. Evergrande, as you say, is filed for, for bank, bankruptcy, Chapter 15 Bankruptcy Protection in the United States. Um, in addition, uh, another uh, Chinese uh, property giant, uh, Country Garden, uh, is in trouble. Um, so they are suspending uh, payment on their debt. Um, so they've, uh, and their shares have slipped to historic low. Uh, they've uh, suspended payment on uh, 10 onshore bonds. Um, and just to give you a, a size of the scale of that, Country Garden uh, had 1.4 trillion yuan of liabilities uh, and expects to have a net loss of between 45 billion and 55 billion yuan uh, for the first half of 2023, so it's pretty grim. Um, this is uh, now reaching the very highest aspects, the top, the top level uh, assets in the uh, property uh, world. The the uh, trophy office built. So Nikki Nikkei Asia reports here that there's vacancies on the the, the top highest quality um, office. Uh, office property in Beijing and Shanghai as tenants leave to seek lower rents. Uh, they say activity began to cool down in the second quarter. Um, and uh, uh, one of the owners of the buildings has listed a 93% fall in first half profits. Rents and occupancy rates will be under continuous pressure. And it's also affecting the housing market. So we have the Financial Times here talking about. Um, uh, the the drop in house prices and the saying secondary home prices continue to underperform uh, with a consistent drop in um, both month to month and year to year. Uh, this has narrowed the price gap between new home prices and uh, existing homes and uh, and threatens to um, generate what they call Japanification, essentially a, a perpetual deflationary slump. Now, uh, a couple of other things on China. 
China cut interest rates uh, yesterday, I think it was. Um, so they're trying to stimulate the economy. They realize there's a problem. So they're, they're in quite a different place from the West. Um, Chinese youth unemployment was, at the last time they reported, an all-time record, 21%. One in five Chinese young people can't get a job. Uh, we don't know what the, what the figure is now because it's so bad that they've stopped reporting on it. Um, and um, it's, it's worth also pointing out that the way that property is funded in China is a kind of like a pyramid scheme. There's a lot of advanced sales. People buy a property that is not yet constructed, uh, pay in full, and that payment actually builds someone else's house. So you need people to constantly enter the marketplace, otherwise the whole thing collapse, collapses. So we could be looking at a very severe uh, uh, real estate sector-led collapse in China. A lot of the debt is held by Western institutions, Western banks and West, Western pension funds. So this will not stop at China and it could well affect uh, the economy in America and in Britain. Uh, well, I would make the point, David, that in the United States, uh, the commercial real estate situation is dire with uh, huge quantities of, of uh, commercial property empty uh, no rents being gathered and uh, property being sold uh, for a song uh, and people still buying it for next to nothing because they're dying to to uh, pick up what they think is a, a great bargain. Um, so my question is, uh, which, which side of the uh, Pacific Ocean is going to go first? I have my suspicions. The trigger might come from the United States, but I see, I take your point that it's uh, the situation not much better uh, over there. Um, We'll talk about that a little bit more in extra, I think. Now, let's just come on to local authority funding in the UK. And uh, I just wanted to bring this on. This is from Unison, uh, the union. Uh, they're saying, uh, they tweeted this out this morning, black hole and town hall budgets uh, raises, raises, sorry, rises to £5 billion. Unison warned some councils would not be able to afford uh, to offer the legal minimum of care next year. Uh, this is not a sustainable situation, according to Mike Short, Unison head of local government, and they ended up uh, giving this story to the BBC in detail. The timing of this is very interesting. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, I think Brian initially and Debbie also uh, covered this document uh, written by Gordon Brown, I believe, uh, for Keir Starmer, uh, A New Britain Renewing Our Democracy and Rebuilding Our Economy, report of the Commission on the UK's Future. I just want to highlight uh, one point from it, uh, because uh, this, of course, is informing uh, Keir Starmer's policy should he become the next Prime Minister. Uh, and point 13 here, local government should be given more capacity to generate its own revenue with new fiscal powers. Now, uh, local authorities haven't got a great reputation on this. Just to give one example of a scandal that's going on at the moment, in order to fill a black hole in the pension scheme, Plymouth City Council uh, accounts have not been approved because it was has been buying £70 million of uh, shares uh, this was a, a borrowed cash in, or, in order to pay off its pension fund deficit and so on. We should remember that not so many years ago, many, many, many UK councils got caught out by the Icelandic uh, bank, banking collapse. Uh, many of them got their money back. Some of them didn't get anywhere near uh, their money back. Uh, but other scandals going on with councils here uh, in recent months uh, this is uh, from June. Woking Council may face £1 billion hit from property investment spree, which went wrong. Uh, Thurrock Council, another example uh, from June, 
uh, hit, hid losses as it gambled millions on risky investments. David, uh, I know you're aware of other cases of this, but you know the councils cannot be relied upon or trusted in this area. They've demonstrated that. Uh, and yet uh, we're, at least the Labour Party, is very keen to give them the ability to raise more revenue, which eventually, of course, means more tax from us. Well, it's more tax. This is exactly the point. I mean, the, the, the failures of councils go back. The first one I came across was the Western Niles, who lost huge sums of money in BCCI, Bank of Credit and Commerce International Collapse. Um, the question that the Labour Party is not actually addressing is uh, the question that this the song that we'll cover again uh, just shortly addresses, which is where does the money come from? Who can pay the tax? Tax is ready at peak tax. More avenues of revenue generation won't help if you're already at peak tax. The harder you squeeze the population, the less blood you get out of them. That's where we're at. And the only solution to that is for government to do less. And that's not in the Labour Party document at all. Uh, well, let's uh, move quickly on to that song. So this is, uh, we covered this uh, last week, uh, Rich Men North of Richmond, and it's done rather well. Um, we have here um, uh, the iTunes top 10 song charts, and it is at number one. And also, um, number two is another song by uh, Oliver Anthony, and he had another three uh, songs in the top 11. So uh, he's been a massive success. Now, the thing that's been very interesting about this is the mainstream media have completely lost the plot over this. They don't know how to respond. They're very sure it's bad, but they really are, are, are flailing around to try and find something to criticise this man about and to uh, do something about his popularity. So here we have the Atlantic the misguided debate over rich men north of Richmond, and you can see the want to defend the rich fat cat politicians. Um, and um, they say, why so much press coverage of this viral song focused solely on politics? Please look the other way. Please don't look at what this man's singing about. Uh, and then we come to The Guardian, the protest song that's taken America by storm, hits too many false notes. So Keenan Malik, who's probably like um, Rishi Sunak in his, his youth, never met an, uh, a working class person, um, writes for The Guardian. He's saying you know, how things it should be, how the working class should perceive uh, the problems that they're facing. So he quotes this song. He says, I've been selling my soul, working all day. Overtime hours for BSP. He says, as he uh, and Keenan Malik says, but as long as dissatisfaction is shaped by politics, that abases working class hopes and is directed as much against the undeserving poor or the culturally different as against employers and politicians who seek to crush unions and impose austerity, rich men, whether north and south of Richmond will remain in power. So you say, please go back to the left-right paradigm that we've been ruling you with and setting you at one another's throats with for all these years. Um, and that hasn't worked and hasn't done anything for the poor, it, it'll work this time. That's his position. It's pathetic. The Independent, even worse, right-wing anthem uh, by singer Oliver Anthony, branded offensive and fat-phobic. Well, there we go. The Independent slowly removing any credibility it had left. New York Times, the same. The irony in the Rich Men North of Richmond song, uh, quote, for my part, I can't help but think there's something ironic about the fact that despite sitting close to this, 
History, the latest populist voice to come out of the Commonwealth, has chosen in the end to give comfort to those with the boot on his neck and to scorn those who might try and help lift it. You see, the rich, the rich politicians north of, north of Richmond, they're just trying to help the poor, Mike. And, and, and this, this singer doesn't understand how, how just generous and wonderful these rich politicians are. And he's singing against them. Mike, what's to be done? Uh, don't ask. <laughs> don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> so the the uh, the Telegraph is the one one of the few newspapers that kind of gets it. Uh, Rich men north of Richmond, the viral hit song, "Damning the DC Elite." Um, now the, there's there's a line in the song that talks about uh, Epstein Island, right? And um, the some of the some of the mainstream press were trying to suggest that was talking about. Uh, helping minors, uh, as in as in children, via foreign aid. I mean, the 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 level of deception. Please look the other way. Is quite awful. Now, uh, Mr. Uh, Anthony was then uh, after all of this attention suddenly came on. His first his first thing he did was a free concert at a farmers market, and we have a clip as to how he started this. I just had something I, I felt compelled to share with you. This is in uh, Psalm, Psalm 37, 12 through 20. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright, but their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little that have righteousness than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will have plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed, and they will go up in smoke. And I'm pretty sure that watching that, the people at The Guardian uh, choked on their low-fat skinny lattes. Yes, okay. Look, you, you want to show a, a little bit of a live performance uh, of this. I don't think we'll, we won't have time for the whole thing, but do you want to show a little bit of it? Yeah, it's it's a short clip anyway, but you cut it when you wish. It's just it, what I want is, uh, people to see is the reaction to the people watching, their reaction to him. They're singing along, they're involved, and they really get what the message is. Time hours for bullshit pay so I can sit out here, waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Lord, it is living in the new world with an old. 
rich men know for rich men. Lord knows they all just want to have total control. Wanna know what you think. Wanna know what you do. And they don't think you know. But I know that you do. Cause your dollar ain't shit. And it's tax to no end. Cause the rich men know for rich men. Okay, thank you for that, David. Now let's just uh, let's just move on to this very quickly. Just a little couple of things on on uh, following up from Friday's program uh, on wildfires. So let's bring the world, uh, the, the, sorry, the the WSJ on screen here. Uh, climate uh, Wall Street Journal: Climate change hasn't set the world on fire. This is from uh, July thirty first, but I just thought I'd uh, remind everybody about this. I don't, we didn't cover it at the time, I don't think. Uh, it turns out the percentage of the globe that burns. Each year has been declining since 2001, and they just uh, published this graph. Uh, this has come from uh, a scientific paper, ScienceDirect.com. The, the, the URL is on screen there. Uh, climate alarms keep telling us that the world is increasingly on fire. It's not. This is the latest NASA satellite data, 20, 2001 to 22. Why haven't you seen this before? Now, this is an opinion piece, but nonetheless, I thought it was worth just highlighting. And then the next thing I wanted to highlight, uh, sort of related, uh, in a sense, I suppose, with this, because Reuters is pushing this out today, uh, and I just thought, is this really the direction we should be heading in? Um, so Cargill chartered dry bulk ship has launched on its first voyage since being fitted with special sails, aiming to study har harnessing wind power can cut emissions and energy usage in the shipping sector. So we're going to uh, start putting sails on our bulk carriers now in order to not use diesel engines. Now, of course, this is a policy, and the policy comes from the United Nations. Uh, but I think uh, uh, in extra room, I might talk a little bit more about this. Uh, International Maritime Organization adopts revised strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from international shipping. Uh, so just very briefly wanted to mention that. Now, um, the DSTL, the Ministry of Defense, um, has been taking part in an AI event uh, the last uh, few days. So let's have a look at this. This was the press release, Learning from Artificial Intelligence with Gaming. DSTL took part in a recent two-day workshop run by the, Med the Machine Speed Command and Control Project on Artificial Intelligence. Uh, it's an innovative workshop. Uh, Cambridge Consultants was involved. Uh, it in uh, combined multiple industry partnerships, uh, participants sorry, with the aim of building a common understanding of the opportunities and challenges of AI across a wider team. Uh, and this was all about showcasing the project's novel AI approaches to command and control via gaming. So we're going to use AI in our com uh, military command and control systems um, and uh, so on. This workshop uh, was set up, it says, not only to raise collective understanding of AI as applied to the command and control domain, but also to examine commercial games like StarCraft II, because that's uh, what you need to do. But this was a bit that... Uh, Crack me up a little bit, David. I'm interested in your thoughts. So the MSC2 project seeks to show ways to improve and transform command and control. It achieves this by aiming to deliver faster and better command and control activities uh, that can prepare for and adapt quicker uh, than those of adversaries. So let's just have a look at their main uh, exercise here. Participants built banana classifiers as part of the workshop, a simple AI tool to classify the ripeness of bananas from photos. So I'm wondering, David, is this because, you know, since we've 
given all our arms and armaments over to Ukraine and they've all been used. We've got nothing else to fire our enemies but bananas. And of course, obviously, if you're going to fire bananas at an enemy, it's better to use an unripe banana because it's harder. So, you know, bananas that are ripe get soft very quickly and you're not going to do much damage. So, so you've got to use AI to be able to identify the unripe bananas. Is that what's going on? Yes, it Sorry. seems to be. Um, and and if, only, if only they would realise that the bananas we should be throwing at the Russians are tinned bananas, that is much more effective. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, look, uh, at your... Well, I think this is this next bit of video from your uh, anti-cancel culture uh, uh, comedy event on Thursday. Yes, so this was another one of uh, the performers, uh, Dominic Frisbee, and it was... It was one of those little moments that will live a long time in the memory because he's standing outside the Holyrood Parliament and he's singing a song about a well-known Scottish female politician that we have discussed many times on the call. Well, I cannot tell you how much excitement it gives me to be singing this next verse in this location. <laughs> they said she was formidable, a lady to admire. The Scottish Margaret Thatcher, full of bones and full of fire. All those English tyrants, she would hold them to account. She'd have another referendum with loads and loads of recounts. She's just so brave, she's just so strong, such a success. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> maybe Nicola Sturgeon's burglar bill. A socialist of the old school with her hands in the till. <laughs> Power praised, praised and praised, they said that she was a genius. I cannot wait for her cellmate to be some bird with a penis. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Nicholas Sturgeon's burglar bill. Well, undoubtedly, we'll get emails on the use of that word uh, at the end of the UK column news. But uh, anyway, David, thank you very much for that. Thank you to Mark as well. Thanks for everybody for watching. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra. Uh, and uh, don't forget the interview at uh, 1 p.m. Uh, tomorrow. But otherwise, we'll see you 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. See you then. Bye-bye.